Good morning. For those who are here regularly, you'll be thinking at this point in time, wow, that was an awfully short worship set before the sermon. And that's because we're switching things up in terms of order a little bit this morning. And uh, we've sent the kids downstairs at the start, and they're going to be coming up after the sermon. And the reason for that is because we're asking the question today, why gather? What is the significance of Sunday services? And that's following largely based on Brent's sermon last week, where he talked about the need to prepare for worship. But I thought maybe part of the reason that we don't prepare very much for worship is because we don't have very high expectations when we gather in worship. And I thought it was worth looking at what, what Scripture says about the significance of Sunday services. And I thought it would be odd to talk about that and then say, okay, now we're done for the day, go home. So uh, Daryl and I decided to reverse the order a little bit and and do it before we have a nice long worship set uh, because I think uh, uh, the teaching ties in directly with what we should experience there. But before we dive into the topic this morning, I did uh, think I have to clarify one thing that's very important based on what Daryl said earlier, and that's that Shoshana is the Trekkie. My preferred greeting is, may the force be with you. So, uh, you know, that's, uh, (laughs) I think there's not really any competition between those two, personally. But, (laughs) all right. With that in mind, uh, as as we look at this topic of why gathering, my experience has been that, generally speaking, there are two kinds of church goers. There are those who come every single week, come hell or high water, and they do so largely because of the fact that they are convinced this is something we ought to do. You could call them the dutiful churchgoers. And then there are those who come a lot more casually. Maybe they're not always on time, or maybe they're the type of people who, you know, would rather go fishing once in a while instead of coming to church on Sundays. Um, and, And so again, we can call them the casual churchgoer. And I, growing up, was definitely in the first category. I was a dutiful churchgoer. That's something that was handed down to me from my family. It was something that we committed to as a family and made every week happen. Now, on time, not necessarily, because single mother, five kids, meant we were often running a little bit late. Um, In fact, you could probably set the clock to 10 minutes after when we were supposed to get there (laughs) with my mother. But... But it was something that we did very consistently and something that was ingrained into me. And so by the time I became a young adult and moved off on my own to university, it was something that I was in the habit of and convinced that I ought to continue doing coming to Peterborough. Which is when Shoshana and I, who had met in high school and were dating and came to Peterborough, uh, went through the process of selecting our first church to attend. And at first, we had checked out a couple churches in the downtown area and found one that looked a little bit like what I was used to growing up, which was a church much like Auburn. And uh, we had picked out that one to visit. Um, And then on the way to church that morning, Shoshana had a friend invite her to come out to the Salvation Army in Peterborough. And that's ended up being where we went for the four years that we were in Peterborough, which worked out okay because the one we were going to check out turned out to be the Chinese church in Peterborough, which is no longer open, uh, but uh, we, we found out that they wouldn't have been speaking English anyways, so that might have been a bit of a barrier. And through those four years while we were at university, um, Shoshana and I attended very faithfully. Either we were here in Peterborough and we went on Sunday morning to the Salvation Army Church, or we were in Ottawa and went back to our home churches there. But it was something that I I stuck to faithfully and was really uh, intent on. Um, 
but during my university years, I was surprised to find that not all of my university peers were in that category. Many of them who were part of the Christian group on campus felt like that was sufficient for them. They didn't really need a local church. They were okay just attending uh, the, the student group. Others tended to move around a lot between different local churches. It was kind of based on whatever the flavor of the month was, wherever their friends happened to be gathering. And so they'd go for maybe a month or two, and then they'd switch it up and go to a different church. Others really just never got to the point of landing back in church. They just felt like they could do their faith on their own. And for me, that really led to a bit of grappling because I felt like there's something missing in their stories. But I realized that I wouldn't really help anyone, my friends or otherwise, by telling them that they needed to go to church just out of duty. I realized that wasn't really a strong motivator, and I wasn't sure anymore that that was the right motivator. And so I had to ask myself, why is it that we go to church? And I think that's an important question, especially in the age of the internet. You see, the internet provides us with a lot of things that make church going seem unnecessary on some level. We have electronic Bibles and reading plans that can take us through scripture in a year, sometimes with really good guidance. We have subscriptions to an almost infinite amount of worship songs and sermon podcasts by the best speakers and worship leaders across the world. We have live streaming video sermons. So you can sit at home on a Sunday morning and you can stream something from all the way across the world and be part of those worship services and sermons if you would like. And of course, we have direct access to teachers through social media and blogs. You don't have to stay on the surface either. You can get really deep. There's things that can help you develop your prayer life. There's audiobooks and ebooks that can allow you to really dig deep into the faith. There's online Bible study tools that can give you commentaries and other resources that can help you go deeper than Brent or I could ever go on a Sunday morning. And if you want, you could even go as far as taking an online seminary course or two. So then the question becomes, why? If you can get an equally good worship experience in your closet with the lights turned off, if you can get even better teaching than Brent or Ben can provide on a Sunday morning just by clicking on a subscribe link on a podcast page, why would you bother with Ben and Brent? There we go. Because we're cool, says Faith. Obviously, we're doing something right at the youth ministry. (laughs) I think that there are four scriptural reasons to gather, and this is not a comprehensive list, I am sure that uh, you could find more reasons than this in Scripture. But there are four that stand out to me that really motivate me to be here on a Sunday morning that go beyond just the sense that I have to or that I should be here. The first is to remember what God has done for us. The second is to be in God's presence. The third is to encourage one another. And the fourth is to bear witness in the world. So we're going to look at different passages that consider each of these different elements of what Scripture teaches about our gatherings, what happens when we come together. Um, I've put all of the Scriptures up on the screen in in the English Standard Version. Uh, You can go ahead and follow along in your Bibles, but I thought since we're skipping around a little bit, I wasn't going to try and direct you to a specific passage. Uh, But we're going to look at different passages that show us each of these elements and talk about the implications when we gather here on a Sunday morning like we have this morning. 
So first, we gather to remember what God has done. And this is really the most fundamental, I think. Through scripture, we recognize that everything we do is a byproduct of the fact that God has given us grace and pursued us. And we want to remember that. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus taught on the night when he was betrayed, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, obviously, this passage is referring to specifically the tradition of taking communion, which is something we do here at Auburn every single week. But more fundamentally, it's a pointer towards the fact that the central reason why we gather, the reason why we are motivated to come together and break bread and sing songs and listen to a sermon is because of the fact that we want to remember. Remembrance is a central theme of Scripture. In the Old Testament, we have feasts, rituals, and various symbols given to remember God's saving work, and especially the Exodus, which was God rescuing his people out of the land of Egypt and giving them an identity and a place in the world. In the New Testament, we have what's called the sacraments, which is baptism and communion that are given to remember what Christ has done for us in laying down his life in our place and offering us new life. It's worth noting that in both of these cases, there's always a sense that we gather not just to remember through the symbols, but we also accompany it by words and by song. These are things we see throughout scripture, that those words help conjure up a remembrance of what it is that took place. I think of the passage where the nation of Israel has crossed over the Jericho River and they set up a pile of stones there. And the reason given is because when your children ask you, why? Why are those stones there? Then you'll have to tell them, well, because God brought us across this body of, land, oh, body of water on dry land. Why is remembering important? Well, the main reason is because one of the weird things about human nature is that we tend to be very forgetful. And this is something that comes up a lot through Scripture. Even as early as the Garden of Eden, it seems like Adam and Eve have really forgotten God's good character when Satan says, God wants to hold out on you. He's not really protecting you. He's actually keeping you from your full potential. And they buy the lie that Satan gives them. They should know. They've walked with God and been in relationship with him. They know he's always looking out for them, but they forget and they fall. And this is the problem of the nation of Israel. They constantly forget the fact that God delivered them of his grace, that he, he's the one who created them. And so they fall into idol worship and look after other gods instead of returning and remembering what Yahweh has done. And again, we see that in the New Testament, even among his disciples, the ones who follow him the closest. They seem to have a hard time grasping what it is that he's teaching them. And he has to come back to the same themes over and over and over again because he knows he has to kind of drill it into their thick skulls. Get it in there so tight that they cannot forget what it is that he's about. This is not something that I appreciate naturally. 
I tend to be somebody who enjoys the novel things in life. I remember a conference that I went to with a couple of good friends a few years in a row, maybe uh, five or six years ago, and it was a reformed conference in Cambridge area. The first time I went, I thought, wow, this was really neat. I enjoyed this a lot. The second year I went, they spoke on almost the exact same thing that they had spoken on the year before. The third time I went, it was the same thing (laughs) that they were speaking on as before. And I kind of said, why is it that they seem to keep on coming back to the same things? And the response was, well, because we think these things are worth coming back to. Now, sometimes it might feel like on Sunday mornings, we get reminded of the same things, that Jesus died on our behalf, that we accept him by faith, and that's how we receive salvation, that we ought to, ought to live our lives in step with him, obe- obeying him because it's for our good. But when you look at scripture, I think it's pretty clear that's important. That sometimes it's good not to always rush off to new things, but to be reminded of the old things. And so when I look at passages like 1 Corinthians 11, I come up with a conviction that rather than always hoping to hear or to feel something new on Sunday mornings, I should be excited to celebrate ancient truths. I should be excited to remember that's something that when we come together should, should be in the air, this excitement that we get to celebrate something, even if we've celebrated it many times before. The second reason then, which flows from the first, that when we gather, we get to be in God's presence. Matthew eighteen eighteen to 20 reads, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three on earth agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is a statement made by Jesus. It actually comes in the context of a passage that's talking about how to deal with sin in the church. We're told that if you have a problem with something that one of your fellow Christians has done, you should approach them and talk to them. And if they don't repent, then you should bring somebody else in who's wise in the church and talk with them. And then ultimately you should get the rest of the church involved in kind of deliberating and making sure that this is a problem. And ultimately, if, if, if it looks like this person really has done wrong and is refusing to deal with it, then at that point in time as a church, you should decide to discipline the person. And what's interesting about it is that we have this statement, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, when the church community makes a big decision, like, like the decision to discipline somebody, God backs that decision. That he supports us in making those decisions. And the question is, why? Why would he support something like that? And the answer is because Christ is present when we gather in his name. Now, it's really important to note that that phrase in his name is vital to this. It means that the community is committed to submitting to Jesus' lordship. It means we acknowledge him as the king of our community. Christ is not present in a community that says, we're just going to do our own thing, forget about God. But in a community that says, we are coming together in Jesus' name to submit to him, to let him lead us, to follow his statutes, that he's there with us. 
And because of that, we can trust he's going to guide us in even heavy decisions, like when somebody needs to be disciplined. And this really is, is again, a primary theme in Scripture. We have to recognize that God's presence, which is promised so often throughout Scripture, is not primarily an individual phenomenon. In the Old Testament, God's presence is represented in the tabernacle and in the temple. The whole of Israel's life was centered literally physically around these places where God was said to live. And the understanding was that his presence is here in the midst of you, plural, the community of believers. And in the New Testament, we see the same thing, that the, the God is present in the spirit of Christ, which is given to all believers as a seal of their faith, as a guide for the community, and as something that transforms and bears fruit in our midst. Now, today, our tendency is to think about these communal ideas as something that starts with the individual and builds up. We might look around and say, well, Daryl has the Holy Spirit, and Bobby Joe has the Holy Spirit, and Tom has the Holy Spirit, and because we all have the Holy Spirit, when we come together, then the Holy Spirit is there with us. But I think it's actually the other way around in Scripture. There's only a few passages that talk specifically about the Holy Spirit working in individual lives. The promise is really that the Spirit is present when we're together. That as a community, that's where the Spirit is found. And that any role that each of us has in participating in the life of the Spirit, that is an outflow of the life of the community. They go from the communal to the individual, rather than the individual to the communal. And even the individual promises, they tend to be for the good of the community. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit. And he makes it very clear that each of us gets different gifts from the Spirit. But at the end of that passage, he says that we all get a manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. In other words, God's always moving and active and working in the community, first and foremost. So for me, I look at that passage and I come away with a conviction that if I want to experience God's presence individually, I need to be committed to being in his presence communally. That I can expect an overflow of that. That if if we're coming together, two or three or, or maybe 80 or 90, in the name of Christ, he's there with us. And that then I can expect that to overflow in the rest of my life. Our third reason, we come together to encourage one another. And again, I think this flows very naturally from the preceding idea. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, this passage begins with this promise. Again, we, we can enter into Christ's presence because he's our priest. And so then he instructs, don't neglect to gather together then. Do it regularly and come together. Why? To encourage one another. And especially as we approach the ultimate return of Christ, which is something that we're told is imminent. And we need to always wait 
on it as if it's imminent. That we should come together regularly to encourage one another. One of the great works of English literature, Pilgrim's Progress, I think portrays this type of relationship beautifully. That we have Christian, the individual pilgrim, who's wandering and journeying towards the celestial city. But he's in need of support because he faces many battles along the way. And so God providentially brings other believers into his life who can help do battle and help encourage and help stand up in the midst of hard times. We recognize that, that we need one another to continue our pilgrimage towards that ultimate heavenly city that we're promised. This brings importance to the less formal parts of our gatherings on Sunday morning. It, it brings meaning to the fellowship that happens before and after the service when we're drinking coffee together. It brings meaning to the prayer times that we might have either during that fellowship time or during the service when we lift up the needs of the community. It brings meaning to the testimonies and stories that we get to hear from one another. We recognize all of these things are us helping each other, encouraging one another as we move forward on this journey. So again, I come up with a conviction as I, as I look at this passage that if I'm to complete my pilgrimage successfully, I need to encourage and be encouraged by others who are on that same journey. And then finally, we come together to bear witness in the world. 1 Peter 2, 9-12 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This passage starts out with the same thing that we keep coming back to. We're a newly created nation of priests. This is, we're a community. We're a people when we weren't before. And this idea of the nation of priests suggests that we have this interceding role. That we actually come together for the sake of the world around us, not just for our own benefit. But we're trying to appeal to them and appeal to God so that the two would be reunited. And there's an expectation in this passage that the people around us are watching. That they are observing. And this may seem a little trite. Like, we don't want to be full of ourselves and think, oh, I'm, I'm center stage, everybody's just watching me. But we see it. We see it in the media. Christians get called out an awful lot in the media. And you'll see it in your conversations. There's a lot of people, if you get digging deep into what their convictions and beliefs are, a lot of the time, they would say, well, I saw this person do this thing once. And man, was it ever a turnoff for me. People who are not here on Sunday mornings, people who are not part of the church in the gathered sense, often are not part because they are watching the church. That should be convicting to us. And we're told here that our deeds should be such that the people who are watching, they begin to actually worship God. Now we tend to think of the good deeds that are mentioned here as checking the list of do's and don'ts. I don't drink. I don't have sex outside of marriage. I don't curse 
or steal. I think those are important things too. People will recognize hypocrisy when they see it in our lifestyles. But scripture makes it clear that there's something even more fundamental than that. That our love is first and foremost the, the, the way that people recognize whether we're actually living by our faith. Jesus actually prays that, that we would be known by our love. Everything else flows from this. And I think this is especially important today. You see, in Jesus' day, it was taken for granted that people would be participants in an extended family, in a neighborhood, in a religious community. That was just par for the course. There was an expectation that everybody had some sort of community. But the work I do with young adults today at Trend, I'm not seeing that a whole lot. It's actually pretty clear that our culture has a lot of trouble building meaningful relationships. Things like Facebook or activities like going to clubs with your friends, they promise connection, but they're so shallow. They really fail to deliver on that promise of any sort of meaningful interaction. So when I look at this passage and when I look at the culture around me, I come away with the conviction that just being part of a loving community is actually a witness to my friends and family. That alone stands out in a culture where we don't really know how to do meaningful relationships. So having spelt out these four different reasons, we come together to remember what God has done. We come together to be in his presence. We come together to encourage one another. And we come together to bear witness in this world. I think it's important to note some of the barriers that are there in our particular time and place. And they really tie into the culture around us. The first barrier, I think, is the fact that we have this consumer mentality. We've been taught to always seek the best deal now, even if it turns out to be Chinese goods that will die in about a week. We're always seeking our immediate benefit. But the reality is that those things that we just named, a lot of the time they're not things you see immediately. A lot of the time they're things that take time and energy, that they're things that develop. And sometimes they require a lot of effort on our part. If we're here on a Sunday morning just expecting to get a quick fix, we're not going to get it a lot of the time. And that's going to discourage us and we're going to walk away. So we have to recognize this consumer mentality is something we have to fight. We don't come here primarily to be a consumer. We do expect to get something. We do. But it's the kind of something that, that takes investment on our part as well. We have to be committed to it before we really begin to see those benefits developing in our lives. The other thing is, is, I already used this word earlier, shallowness. We just tend to be a culture that doesn't really do things that require a lot of mental and emotional effort. We tend to enjoy pleasures that are pretty shallow. The unfortunate truth is that joy is often something that has to be worked for. And we need to let God work in us to deepen our pleasures and deepen our passions. John Piper has a great saying. He says that the human soul has a tendency to shrink or expand to the size and quality of our pleasures. 
And that's convicting to me because I realize a lot of the time my pleasures are so small and shallow. It's kind of like a river that's run dry and all we have left is a little puddle that we can kind of make mud pies in. We want the ocean. We want deep pleasure. So we have to resist this tendency to be shallow and be willing to stretch ourselves a little bit, even if it's sometimes hard. And the last barrier, I think, and this is just a confession on my part, is the fact that sometimes we who are on stage, we slip into the mentality that we're putting on a show. It can feel like our primary purpose here is to entertain or to, to feed that consumer mentality. It's very easy for us to, to think that it's our job to make these things come true that we've just talked about. But it's not really. All of these things are things that happen when God is at work in a community. And so as leaders, we need to be first and foremost submitting to him and experiencing these things ourselves. If we're coming in with the idea that we're supposed to be the ones who are making things happen and and putting on a show, a lot of the time that models the other two things, the consumer mentality and the shallowness. And so I want to close with a a quote by Piper and just say this is something I aspire to and that I think the leaders here want to aspire to. He's talking about this idea of serious joy. And he says, Our people desperately need good models of serious joy. Not somber joy, but serious joy. I fear there are so many people who don't have a clue what I'm talking about. All they can do is put this in the category of glum. I hope they're listening more carefully. Our people need to see in their pastor the kind of earnestness about life and worship and ministry that is gloriously happy in the child of God. Happy that I am his child, happy to be called into his service, and gloriously able to show that and express that without borrowing from the same demeanor and the same vocabulary of a carnival or a talk show. And that's convicting to me. I, I am convicted. I want to be a model of this kind of serious joy that Piper's talking about when we come together. And I hope that we can all aspire to that too. That we would be able to worship deeply. And that we'd be able to press in to the task of pursuing the joy that's promised when we look at Scripture and what it has to say about our communal gatherings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we recognize the starting point for all this that we've talked about this morning is the fact that you have pursued us and sought us and bought us, even at your expense, your son's blood shed for us. And so as we now turn and begin praising you with our words and music, and we look to the the time that we share communion together, Father, I pray that all of us would be stirred up to recognize you and thank you for what you've done. And that we'd be able to experience your presence, to encourage one another, and ultimately to bear witness in this world that needs you so desperately. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.